Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope each and every one of you have had a good start to your week. And no matter where you live in the world, I hope all of you are uh, safe and sound as best as possible. You know, I will say that I was uh, very impressed uh, by uh, the results that I've uh, seen so far with um, people uh, regaining uh, an interest in uh, our new uh, book topic uh, series. Not so much regaining an interest, but perhaps um, regaining an interest in the subject uh, that is uh, being discussed, uh, that is the Boston Massacre. I have no doubts that many of you whom are avid uh, history buffs like me always find something new uh, to learn about something that um, that not only is of significant importance, but something that um, pertains to a historical event or person that you didn't know before, but um, but is worth learning about and uh, and trying to uh, go about um, learning about that matter or person from a different uh, perspective. And so I'm sure many of you were probably surprised to to know that. Um, that there was, in fact, or rather that there is, in fact, I should say, more than just uh, one side to this uh, event. In other words, yes, you know, Paul Revere's side of the story, per that um, copper engraving, wanted us to believe for years that the, um, that the British soldiers whom fired into the crowd did so in a ruthless manner. However, at the same time, we also had to be reminded that um, a lawyer by the name of Mr. John Adams saw the, saw Revere's copper sheet engraving. As much respect as John Adams did have for Paul Revere, you know, somebody has to defend those soldiers, but nonetheless, John Adams decided to take uh, Revere's engraving and interpret it differently. And... And yet, even though we have two sides to a story here, the one thing that probably baffles us but yet surprises us the most is how people in general within the greater Boston community or or the town of Boston just before 1770 did in fact uh, coexist as peacefully as possible. They may not have been 100% perfect, but they actually did learn to coexist uh, peacefully. Well, how, it's not so much uh, local Bostonians, but learning that um, where we're going forward and learning that uh, the people of Boston, for the most part, did manage to uh, coexist with uh, British troops and regiments whose families lived near or around those uh, whom were uh, whom were uh, locals or um, or uh, townspeople. You know, we still have a long ways to go in this uh, book topic uh, series on how uh, relationships will evolve um, prior to uh, mid-February, March 5th, 1770. But one thing I can tell you all is, uh, especially with this podcast episode um, segment, we will learn about some... Um, people, not just individuals, but perhaps um, a married couple or two, whose um, not just names, but perhaps marriage will um, expand beyond what we talk about um, in this uh, episode, 
but these are people who are everyday average Joe people. These are people who um, did not, it would be fair to say that these are people whom were not uh, considered to be of upper gentry rank. You know, average Joes, uh, perhaps um, what we would think of as a middling family or a lower middle class, but people who are just average Joes, whom are trying to make their way from one part of the world to another. So, besides learning about these um, families whom will be coming over, we will also need to learn um, what kind of roles um, women, that is, uh, married women, would have uh, assumed when uh, taking a role in the army. In other words, you know, women weren't soldiers in 18th century, but they had duties. And we also might be uh, surprised to find out what, uh, what other duties that uh, soldiers within the British Army had other than, you know, patrolling or being on uh, night watch. After all, there's more to being a soldier than just uh, carrying your rifle or musket up by your shoulder. Uh, we will also learn about um, issues that... Uh, that that uh, upper uh, ranks of the British military faced. In other words, what kind of issues do the uh, do the inner does the inner circle see in the sense of well, what kind of risks do uh, women pose? In other words, you know, is everybody going to accept uh, women in the uh, greater military, or are they going to see women as being somewhat of a, a red flag amongst the greater? Um, soldier population, given that the vast majority of a regiment is comprised of men. And then, you know, we'll learn just how many women would have been assigned to a regiment at one point in time. So, you know, we have a lot of ground to cover, but we should um, definitely be looking forward to uh, learning some other new venues behind um, what led up to mid-February into uh, the start of March 1770. But before we even get to that point, we have to, um, our time machine will take us into the uh, start of the uh, mid, uh, around the mid-1760s. So our first leadoff question will be um, the following with regards to a woman whom, whom uh, a lot of historians don't know a whole lot about, but they know some information about that has allowed them to go forward in giving her as good of a relevant story as there is possible about how she um, trans um, about how she goes about um, transitioning from life in Europe to journeying three thousand miles across the ocean to America. So here we go. Who is uh, Jane Chambers? Well, Jane Chambers is a woman from Ireland whom not only was married, but whose husband served in the British Army. June 7th, 1765, uh, Jane Chambers went about making her way through the busy streets of Cork. And I'm sure many of you are thinking Cork. I mean, when we think of Cork, think of like um, Cork out of a wine bottle. But there is a, a village known as Cork that is located in southwest Ireland. 
Okay, so Jane Chambers on June the 7th, 1765, according to historians, they know that she is making her way through the busy streets of Cork, located in southwest Ireland, to the harbor, where she and her husband Matthew, including their young child, all would go aboard the HMS Thunderer. The ship which comprised of Matthew Chambers' army regiment. So, you know, it's, oftentimes it's easy to think that, well, when one enters a uh, boat some, or goes aboard a ship, it's often easy to assume that, oh, it must have been for tourism purposes. Well, no, folks, there was no such thing as uh, tourism in 1765 like we know today. But nonetheless, uh, Matthew Chambers, his wife Jane, and their young child will be uh, going aboard the HMS Thunderer. And this is not a ship that they choose. This is a ship that is assigned to them based upon the regiment that Matthew uh, Chambers is a part of, being um, the 29th Regiment of Foot. This regiment that Matthew is a part of will be, dis will be mentioned more than just once in this podcast segment, but throughout the remainder of this book topic series discussion, the 29th Regiment of Foot will, uh, will be uh, discussed heavily. Three days after um, boarding the HMS Thunder, Matthew, Jane, and their young child depart from Cork, Ireland to America. Well, as I said earlier, uh, Jane Chambers was not one of those individuals that um, historians have a lot of information on, but I will tell you all here shortly what information historians do have, which not only have, um, which will not only give us a better um, perspective on who Jane really could have appeared to have been in person, but how Serena Zabin went about describing her in, this, uh, in the book she um, wrote, uh, being the Boston Massacre of Family History. So Jane Chambers wasn't a person of fame. Historians don't know exactly what year she was born, nor the year she got married. However, historians have learned various elements, such as the choices she made, the family that she would that she goes about creating, to voyages she embarked upon, and her relations amongst civilians living in Boston leading up to 1770. So it is fair to say that uh, perhaps we do, we have some things that we can go by uh, that will help us get a better understanding of who uh, Jane Chambers was. And the role she played uh, more than just uh, being um, Matthew Chambers' wife. If one were to ask me how old Jane Chambers could have been by 1765, if, if one asked me, I would probably say early 20s or perhaps right around the age of 20. Again, uh, historians don't know exactly what year she was born or the year that she got married, but it would... It, but to me, it would be fair to say that she could have gotten married around the time she was 20 or just past the age of 20, being somewhere in her early uh, 20s. 
Now, wherever British soldiers, per their regiments, whom they were designated to, went, an important rule of thumb is the following, that the wives and children accompanied their husbands. So this could be seen as a good example as an early form of modern-day armies resembling a family um, establishment. You know, it's one thing for a soldier, you know, in modern-day times, a soldier, you know, he's a part of, say, um, a squadron, a unit, but he gets um, departed, or deported, rather, I should say, to go uh, somewhere um, overseas. You know, yes, his family could go along with him or go with her. Uh, I don't know how, I don't know what the general protocol more so is by today's standards, but it is fair to say that um, that a husband or wife who's in the military does have the option of bringing their spouse and family with them overseas, uh, depending on what the mission is, but they do have that option. But it would be fair to say that in 18th century times that it was probably more of a mandatory, I don't know if I would say it was 100% mandatory, but but if a, a soldier being in the British military was married, I think he would want his uh, wife and children to accompany him. This way, uh, the family still um, still is together, not only in times of peace, but in per, but perhaps in uh, times of um, leading up to uh, war, or in times where the husband is part of a regimental unit that needs to uh, put down a rebellion or needs to put down some kind of uprising activity. We might talk a little bit more about that here soon, but just to give you an indication that wherever British soldiers, per their regiments, whom they were designated to, uh, got, got assigned to with regards to location, the wives and children accompanied their husbands. Now, is it fair to say that women whom accompanied an army in 18th century times, didn't always get properly labeled. I'm sure some of you are asking, what do you mean by properly labeled? Well, I can tell you this much, that this is something I've had to be reminded of, and I think it's something that all of us should be reminded of, that, that if a woman did not dress properly... I'm not trying to sound sexist, folks, but I but this is something that I have learned from uh, going to Colonial Williamsburg and and just learning about the etiquette of uh, colonial days. But um, for example, if a woman did not um, present herself appropriately in a public setting, then she was frowned upon, and some would have uh, labeled her as being a loose individual. And in 18th century times, if um, there were those whom often saw a woman's presence in an army as something of a red flag, where if she didn't dress accordingly, then she got viewed as uh, someone um, with issues. And in certain instances, um, those from within could have viewed um, a woman whom was not well presented as um, being that of a prostitute. Again, I'm not trying to sound extreme, folks. I'm not trying to sound um, sound negative, but it, it was one thing to um, 
it's one thing to have a set of clothes on, but if you are not dressed accordingly or properly per the setting you're in, it will raise a red flag. And people will, um, they will talk as if they are gossiping about you. Um, it, one thing I can point out, too, is that in colonial times, um, yes, it could be hot outside, and yet women still wear a full um, dress and all that. There's a reason why. Because by wearing a full dress, it prevented men from looking up, from from acting inappropriately by looking up a woman's skirt. In other words, if a, by a woman wearing a full skirt, it prevented a man from um, from doing something that would be the would be like the uh, little phrase, you know, so and so's giving me the creeps. So all of these uh, proper etiquette tactics or etiquette measures do um, have a lot of uh, relevant um, significance. So yes. There were times when uh, women weren't always uh, properly uh, labeled in terms of how they appeared. And yes, there were those uh, officers from within the British Army whom, um, whom, did, whom honestly felt that if a woman did not dress properly, then she was seen as a red flag. However, Jane Chambers and many other women... And, and I will mention this more here uh, soon, but Jane Chambers and many other women did more besides accompanying the army as part of a greater family unit. They got paid for the work duties performed, and a majority of the women, like Jane Chambers, were of married status. Now, I should point out that... Um, as for British soldiers, a majority of them, folks, we've always been told for years that the majority of British soldiers were bachelors. It just so happens, folks, that the majority of the British soldiers were not bachelors. But at the same time, officers of high-ranking status had little to no value for non-married soldiers. The British Army did offer opportunities to many whom had little else available in the form of work. So, if you aren't married and you still want to join the British Army, uh, you can do that. It just means that you're probably going to have to prove um, to those whom are of married status and of high-end status in terms of... Um, an officer who was able to pay his way through via commission, it just means that you'll have to go the extra mile to really prove to the um, officers above you that, hey, I may be a bachelor, but I'm going to show you all that I have what it takes to serve in the king's army. Now, as for Matthew Chambers, Jane's, Jane's husband, did Matthew Chambers view the army as an institution offering opportunities. Yes, come around 1759, recruitment for enlisting in the British army increased given Britain's role during the Seven Years' War had expanded outside of North America, believe it or not, to other places around the world such as uh, other parts of Europe and as far away as India, which I did not know <laughs> But it shouldn't come as a surprise, given 
Britain is the world's mightiest empire even at the height of the Seven Years' War, a.k.a. French and Indian War. Historians know uh, prior to Matthew Chambers' army enlistment that Matthew had been trained as a tailor until the age of 19. They know he was born in uh, a county in Ireland known as County Down, about 10 miles away from Belfast, which is to the north. The historians aren't 100% sure what exact reason there might have been for uh, why Matthew uh, Chambers went about uh, joining, or rather I should say enlisting in the army, but they have come up with a couple of reasons. One reason could be um, with regards to um, army officers offering him um, a recruitment bonus offer. Okay, you know, we're in need of soldiers and if you come and join the army, we will give you um, a little bonus, an, an extra incentive. Kind of like a benefits package of sorts. How about the promise of consistent employment? You know, yes, it's one thing to be a tailor, but there could be um, moments where you have more steady um, work coming in, and there could be times when the work isn't as steady. So by being in the Army, there is a greater likelihood that you would have uh, consistent uh, employment. And then how about um, the possibility of earning a pension? In other words, um, regular uh, payment received once after retiring from a line of work. So in other words, okay, Matthew Chambers joins the military, and after X number of years of serving in the King's Army, he retires, but he, um, but he was promised um, a pension and does get the pension, he'll still get paid after having retired from that line of work. So these are just um, a couple of various um, factors that could have explained why Matthew Chambers um, was drawn into uh, joining the King's Army. But I do know that um, lack of finding regular work did not result in drawing attention to younger women. Okay, so if you are struggling to find regular work and you want to um, find that special soulmate, good luck on trying to find uh, that right, uh, that right um, lady. But if a fellow became a soldier, his chances increased behind getting a young woman to come approach him. So it probably is fair to say that if a that if a if a fellow in England wore a red coat uh, jacket or uh, wore a British Army attire, it's going to catch the eyes of young single women because they like to see men in fine attire, most notably if they're serving the king's if they're serving um, the king. So. For Matthew uh, Chambers, he found his wife in his early 20s. And given that Matthew was now a married man by the time 1765 has arrived, he would get more respect not only at home but within his community. So it is fair to say that when a man is married, that he, um, that his, uh, 
you could almost say like his stock, his value, his presence, all of that means more. Not that there's nothing wrong with being a bachelor, but if you stay as a bachelor too long, what are the prospects that you're going to find someone that is a woman whom can be compatible with you, not just short term, but long term? A married man in his early 20s is going to have a lot more to offer. Now, did officers have objections to traveling with women? Believe it or not, folks, officers did have objections to traveling with women. But I know I mentioned earlier about how some officers had a, had um, had uh, hesitations when a woman did not present herself properly um, in public. But in this case, with um, officers having objections to traveling with women, it actually stemmed from a financial standpoint. Well, you know, I will say this, folks. It's one thing to be in, in the Army. It's one thing to be in a regiment. But that does cost money. No matter how many um, men you have that make up a regiment, the government has to be able to fund the regiment, not just the regiment itself, but all regiments. Not only those that are, say, in England or Ireland, but elsewhere around the world where the British Empire is in need of soldiers, um, regardless of whether it's a time of peace or in a time of war. It's not free. It, it's not free in, in the sense of uh, being able to maintain an army. It's an expense. So from a financial standpoint, British officers have these questions to ponder, such as uh, transportation payment expenses, payment of rations, clothing, food, to payment of wages for work performed. So in other words, how much are we going to allot out of our budget to ensure that, um, that if we have women coming with us, how much are we going to pay them? How much are we going to pay the wives for the work they perform? How much are we going to pay uh, to give them per clothing and food? I mean, it's a lot to think about. However, British officials over time became more flexible to where they did allow a certain allotment or number of women per regiment. All right, so they are moving in the right direction. 1759, the year of Matthew's enlistment, was one which saw recruiters everywhere throughout Northern Ireland. 1759, the same year, Matthew chose the 29th Regiment of Foot. The 29th Regiment of Foot was a uh, British regiment that had been that had been placed in Ireland for the last nine years. So it could be fair to say that uh, Matthew Chambers was was looking for a regiment that had uh, consistency in in um, in one country for some time. But it's probably fair to say that Matthew probably knew that it would just be a matter of time before there would be uh, a necessary change where where this regiment may have to go elsewhere where the demand was greater. The previous, in previous 18th century wars, the 29th Regiment had seen action in the West Indies, Canada, to Gibraltar. But come 1750, 
the unit returned to Ireland and remained there throughout the Seven Years' War duration. So think about it, folks. The 29th Regiment of Foot never had to go to America at any moment in time during the, the Seven Years' War. It's easy to assume that sometimes when there's a conflict that all British regiments in existence are in one part of the world where the conflict is taking. I think it's fair to say that even though the British Army is the world's biggest army, it is fair to say that the government did allot what was necessary to uh, finance a war, but, not, but at the same time, not needing to get every uh, other regiment out there to come and fight. In other words, they allotted what was necessary, and yet they still managed to defeat the French and the Indians. Now, I will say that the French and Indian War did not start off well for the British. For those of you who were with me when we talked about the tragedy of Benedict Arnold by Joyce Lee Malcolm, we did learn just how uh, painful it was for the British in the first uh, year or two of the conflict. But by 1758, the British had finally figured out how to defeat the French and the Indians. And going onward after 1758, the British were the ones that had the upper hand. And it's probably fair to say that even by 1759, even with the British having the upper hand, it probably doesn't. It probably didn't hurt to have extra recruitment. When you're on a roll, yeah, recruit as much as possible for that home stretch because you never know when you're going to need to uh, fill fill in the uh, missing gaps that a regiment uh, might need, an existing regiment might need, if they are uh, shorthanded given to uh, given such factors as say a loss of uh, men on a battlefield. So come 1750, yes, the, this unit returned to Ireland and remained there throughout the Seven Years' War duration. The regiment did move, however, throughout various places or spots in Ireland, from Kilkenny in the east to Galway in the west. Matthew Chambers was stationed in Dublin and Cork. His actions, well, not his actions, but the actions of the uh, regiment, I should say, ranged from putting down an occasional riot to uh, to uh, putting down agrarian protest movements. So it is fair to say, folks, that this uh, 29th Regiment of Foot is not sitting around twirling their thumbs doing nothing. Although um, it, it could be fair to say throughout the time they have been in Ireland, they haven't had to deal with a whole lot of upheaval, but when it has been dealt with, they've been able to take care of it pretty swiftly without any loss of life on their end. Here's a two-part question. So here we go. Part one, what line of work did Matthew partake in while serving the 29th Regiment of Foot? He worked as a tailor. And I'm sure some of you, all of you, most of you know what a tailor is, but if some of you out there uh, don't know what a tailor is, that is someone who uh, went about making clothes. And in this case, for Matthew Chambers, given that he was already a tailor before joining the 29th Regiment of Foot, he went about making clothes for his fellow soldier comrades, including performing alterations. Hey, you know, it's great that you've got someone who's not only a soldier, but who also um, 
does tailor work in this way perhaps the the army doesn't have to um pay unnecessary expenses out of their own pockets just to find tailors whom will um whom they would have to hire and pay just to be able to uh, make clothes for the soldiers, but also perform alterations. Not that there's nothing wrong with it, but it probably could be very expensive to have to hire uh, someone from the outside to come and work um, in the British Army for uh, when it comes to uh, tailor uh, matters. Part two uh, is the following to this question. What line of work could Jane, Matthew's wife, have taken on within the Army? Well, for starters, uh, she could have washed and repaired clothes, especially given privates, were provided only one uniform a year, which they had to purchase per their own wages. Army women like Jane also played the role of nurses for those soldiers whom got wounded to being sick, including being a cook to cleaning stockings and belts. Army women like Jane would also have been required to clean ashes in order to go about making soap so the cycle process behind washing could resume without further delays. <laughs> Remember, folks, there's no such things as uh, modern-day washers, washing machines, and dryers. You know, they don't have any um, tied um, liquid detergent. Uh, none of that stuff is around, so... In order to go about, um, in order to go about um, uh, restarting the cycle process with washing clothes, you're going to have to clean the ashes in order to go about making soap. That's you know one of the steps, but it's not just something that happens overnight. Now, is it fair to say that Ireland had become a holding ground for trained soldiers during the Seven Years' War? Yes, especially considering soldiers could get sent to different regiments whose numbers were low and required getting replenished. 1765, uh, two years after the Seven Years' War ended, the Chambers family was caught up in the transfer process where June of that year saw them get relocated from Cork, Ireland to America. What did uh, Britain's Secretary of War implement uh, not long after the Seven Years' War ended? And I'm sure some of you are thinking, why does this matter? Well, I'll tell you why. Let's find out. Well, Britain's Secretary of War um, implemented a, um, a measure for moving regiments more thoroughly within the British Empire, which in his mind meant every two years, a regiment would no longer be needed at their post, or rather I should say at their station, and could return home, unless other unforeseen circumstances arose, such as a, such as a uh, dramatic conflict from within the country that they were stationed in that required their presence to be there until the situation was calmed to the point where the next um, regiment in line would be uh, coming over to take the place of the uh, regiment that was already there. In 1764, four regiments left Ireland to embark upon the West Indies, whereas three regiments from the West Indies got sent home. North America, 
In North America, I should say, the objective was to replace five out of 15 units left on the continent in 1765, another five in 1766, and three more in 1768. So I'm beginning to wonder, by as the 1760s, of course, we don't want to get too far ahead of the game, but it might sound fair to say that sometime before the 1760s will come to an end, that Parliament, and rather I should say the British government, their main goal is by the time the 1760s comes to an end, their main goal would be to have just two regiments left in, um, in America. And they are hoping that perhaps with smaller uh, numbers that this will help um, that this will help out in uh, many ways for the better. We should keep in mind that um, that one of the main reasons why um, why there was a great uh, presence of British troops in America, not so much to fight against the French and Indians during the French and Indian War, but it was to also protect their uh, brethren, being the colonists, or pe or their um, the colonies, the people inhabiting the thirteen colonies. Their mission was to keep those people safe from uh, frontier raids uh, that would have been instigated by Indians. Frontier land being uh, west of the Appalachians into what we know as present-day Ohio, um, Indiana, Illinois. Think about that, folks. At one time, that air, most of that area, if not most of it, a good chunk of it, was considered uh, French territory up until... The, the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. So, so what the British are obviously hoping is that now that this war has come to an end, that there will still need to be uh, protection along the frontier. But one thing that the colonists might not be anticipating is how uh, those expenses are going to have to be paid out for. In other words, even that is not a free luxury as well. Yes, there have been uh, taxes that the colonists have agreed to, but at the same time as the Seven Years' War has come to an end, there's going to be a whole new set of um, measures that are going to um, either make or break relations over time to where some are going to support the measures, some are going to say, hey, um, wait a minute, it's one thing to be asked to do something, but if we didn't get consent or if we didn't send people 3,000 miles across the ocean to represent us on our behalf, then how is this uh, contract or agreement considered to be void, or not void, but considered to be valid? So these will be questions that will have to be addressed as uh, time uh, progresses. Now, uh, where in uh, North America was the 29th Regiment of Foot scheduled to go in 1765? Well, the answer is Canada, folks. The issue at stake behind... Now, before I get to that, yes, the answer is Canada. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, why Canada? Well, uh, believe it or not, folks, I mean, if there was to be a 14th um, colony... In North America, it would have been Canada. 
but that just never happened. But it could have. So we should also be reminded, too, that um, during the French and Indian War, Canada was not in the hands of the British. It was in the hands of the French, most notably uh, Quebec. So at the end of the uh, French and Indian, Indian War, another piece of territory that the French had to give up was what they claimed to uh, land possession-wise in Canada. And, and I would have to say probably one of the biggest things they had to give up was their alliances with the Indian tribes that they had established um, ties with. Guess where all those uh, relations are now going to? The British. The British now have a lot to learn in the sense of how they're going to establish relations with Indian tribes along the frontier. And, I, and I've said before from other podcast uh, topics, and I'll say it again, one of the biggest, um, I would say one of the biggest um, um, measures that were uh, thrown against the Americans was a complete 360 reversal where prior to the war's end, the British had promised their subjects, being the, those in the 13 colonies that after the war ended, they would be allowed to um, migrate uh, westward those who wanted to could go westward and go uh, west of the Appalachians into present-day Ohio, uh, present-day western Pennsylvania, where we know uh, Pittsburgh. They would be allowed to go westward. Well, that didn't happen. Guess who's getting? Um, guess who's getting more protection? The Indians. The British are looking after the Indians. They are going to see to it that the Indians don't deal with. Um, with uh, colonists wanting to come westward and encroach upon their territory. So this would make uh, men like George Washington and anyone else whom owns extensive uh, land holdings uh, west of the Appalachians and present-day Ohio and um, western uh, Pennsylvania around present-day Pittsburgh. It would make men like George Washington and other uh, noteworthy Virginians especially Virginians, given that Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies, it would make them very upset, knowing that their uh, concerns were not um, addressed like they were originally promised, and now they're being put on the back burner. So now we can understand why um, there is uh, hesitations now about Canada. The issue at stake behind why most soldiers opposed leaving Ireland, and believe it or not, folks, many soldiers did oppose leaving Ireland. Why? Well, let's find out. Many soldiers opposed leaving Ireland. It was due to the fact uh, that it pertained to such personal matters as long distance and being further away from their homes and loved ones. But also for these soldiers, well, but also for many of these soldiers, I should say, and this isn't something that should be taken for granted, but sadly it is in today's time. But it's something that, believe it or not, it did exist, folks. There were a fair number of soldiers, not just in the 29th Regiment of Foot, but in other British regiments, whom struggled with basic fundamentals like not knowing how to properly read nor write. Matthew Chambers, folks, 
never had learned how to sign his name prior to departing Cork, Ireland on June 10, 1765. And we know that Matthew Chambers was probably about 19 or 20 years old in 1759, so if that's the case, then he's got to be at least 25 or 26 years old in 1765. So can you imagine being in his shoes and not knowing how to properly write his name or sign his name on a legal document. So we do need to keep in mind, folks, that there were um, individuals between the ages of 15 and 20 who had probably never learned how to properly read nor write. So it's something that just should not be taken for granted, but let's just keep in mind that it did happen, and it and it wasn't confined to just uh, those in the in the um, low-level ranks of British society. It was probably amongst um, middling families uh, in that um, society. The costs, or let alone the sacrifices, were made uh, by many, made by many soldiers, I should say whom departed from Ireland. And these sacrifices, you know, they were high. One in particular was a lady by the name of Isabella Graham, who was the wife of a surgeon. She came to Canada with her husband and his regiment in the late 1760s. This Talk about sacrifice here, folks. Isabella and her husband went as far as leaving behind an infant son whom would get raised by his grandmother, or I should say by his maternal grandmother. Isabella sadly never saw her son or mother again. I, I, I wonder, you know, was she afraid to bring her child overseas uh, to a new uh, part of the world knowing that perhaps her child might have died along the way? Uh, over, I think it could be fair to say that that might have been the case. It probably is fair to say that there were um, some people who might have died along the way over. How many uh, men consisted of a full uh, regiment? Roughly around 600. This meant that Britain's army administration determined that 60 women, folks, were needed per regiment to go about performing duties from cleaning, tending to the wounded and sick, and doing laundry. 60 women per regiment out of 600 men meant that one man in 10 could bring his wife with him overseas. 10%, folks. However, there were some administrators whom chose to take a more modified approach. We talk, um, How about um, talking about this one fella here, who, whose name is not one of um, famed significance, but his name is worth mentioning. How about a, a fella named Lieutenant General Robert Rich? He was an officer uh, whom expressed concerns about families left behind, where his mission sought to resolve an, an outstanding matter that had not uh, been, not so much properly addressed, but had not been resolved previously. 
Robert, or rather I should say Lieutenant General Robert Rich was president of the Board of Overseers for a charity school based in Dublin, Ireland. Between February to April 1765, board members of this charity school determined there were over 400 boys, either orphaned or destitute, a.k.a. poor, to where the current numbers could further increase, making funding matters more problematic. Well, it's one thing to have, you know, 10 or 12 children destitute or, you know, maybe 10 families who were so destitute that they could not afford to take care of themselves and the government had to be the ones to look after them, not just short term, but long term. But when you have over 400 boys that are either orphaned or destitute, the government is going to end up having to sport, spend more money than perhaps what it has uh, coming in. In other words, the Irish, or the government, well, we should say that in this point in time in 1765, Ireland is still under the domain of England, being a part of what's called the uh, the Union Jack. Or, but um, do you really think Parliament would want to spend more money? In other words... Parliament is already in in the red, given that they've um, they're str still struggling to find ways to uh, make up for um, getting a surplus, given how much money was spent during the Seven Years' War, which pretty much uh, drained uh, the Treasury. So for uh, Lieutenant General Robert Rich, in the spring of 1765, he came up with a solution to, um, he proposed a plan allowing unrestricted uh, numbers of families of private soldiers to accompany all regiments going to North America. Rich's concerns uh, centered upon impacts of uh, destitute women and children left behind in Irish towns, including budgets for funding purposes. So in other words, the more uh, women and children left behind who were destitute, could pretty much uh, burden the government to the point where the government would run out of money to take care of these people. And if that were the case, then where else are these uh, women and children going to go? In other words, it might be better to send them overseas where they can be with their husbands, not just short-term, but long-term. Because remember, folks, wherever a regiment goes... You know, the soldiers don't have their choice on where they go. The regiment they are assigned to goes where the government or goes where the um, army tells them to go in terms of uh, army administrative officials. How many weeks did the Chambers family spend aboard HMS Thunder after having departed from Cork, Ireland, June 10th, 1765? Believe it or not, folks, uh, the Chambers family um, spent uh, nearly five weeks aboard HMS Thunderer. The ship arrived to Halifax, Nova Scotia around mid-July. And it just so happens that the news of HMS Thunderer's arrival made newspaper headlines as far south as Boston, Massachusetts, being 400 miles away. To me, that would have been breaking news for its time. I mean... You know, it's one thing to uh, find out about something that happened in one part of the world, but to find out about 
this uh, ship arriving to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and here you are 400 miles away and you find out about it in the newspaper? Yeah, I guess that is a big deal. I think, I think any ship that comes and goes probably would be considered a big deal because you never know what it might be transporting as long as it's something that's relevant and um, nothing illegal. But of course, even in, even in the post-French and Indian War era, we should keep in mind that there are smuggled goods being brought into America at a cheaper rate, especially Dutch tea. That will uh, be a... Um, a thorn in the leg of the crown, uh, not only for the remainder of the 1760s, but into the start of the 1770s. But um, I should point out that in uh, 1765, uh, there were uh, three newspapers in Boston. Three. That's quite a, that was a large number for that day and time. These three newspapers all mentioned about the HMS Thunder's arrival to Nova Scotia from Ireland, which included total troop numbers around 500 which um, whom came to take over for those troops which had been in Nova Scotia for some time. Bostonians remained very vigilant behind the current transition with troop rotations to size and regiment numbers. Perhaps Bostonians know something that could be in the works. Or maybe they are just so concerned that, given that a new set of uh, people are have made their way across the ocean, what future does this hold? Is this a, is this going to be a, a future that will, will remain for the better, or could it be a future that brings uncertainty to where something big could happen down the road that either might make or break the well-being of a town? There are a lot of unknowns, but yet at the same time, being vigilant is better than um, than being the opposite, if you ask me. Sometimes it's always better to be on the offensive than sit back and be complacent. But with this kind of change, there are going there's going to be a lot of questions. There's going to be a lot of um, curiosities. And of course, with questions and curiosities... People do ask, is this for better or for worse? Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and I look forward to being back on the air with you all uh, next time I'm on. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn a little bit more about the, um, about the presence of, um, of the uh, 29th Regiment of Foot in Nova Scotia. We're going to learn about um, whether or not uh, anything ordinary out of the blue comes up that... Um, that would, that would require the presence of the 29th Regiment afoot to uh, make their way 400 miles south into Massachusetts from Halifax, Nova Scotia. But uh, we will certainly have more uh, relevant information to talk about, which is always a good thing. Thank you for your time as always, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe.